from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, July 5th. I'm Marco Werman. Today, inside Syria's propaganda machine, we hear what a reporter from a pro-government Syrian TV network is saying after fleeing to Turkey. And later, the lingering questions over Yasser Arafat's death. Nobody has an interest in killing Yasser Arafat except Israel. Nobody. Plus, a new art exhibit that recreates the cliffhanger ending from the 1969 movie The Italian Job. It's teetering on the edge. It's hydraulically driven to move up and down 12 degrees, which is quite a considerable bit. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The fortunes of the government in Syria continue to shift. A high-profile Syrian general has reportedly defected and fled to Turkey. General Manaf Tlas is said to be a friend of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and a commander in Assad's elite Republican Guard. Though that defection has yet to be confirmed, another is certain. Gatan Sleba, a reporter with Syria's pro-government Al-Akbariya TV network, recently fled to Turkey. Once there, he spoke with the BBC's James Reynolds. Reynolds says Sleba admitted his TV network fabricates stories to suit Assad's regime. He said that the ruling Ba'ath Party would issue instructions via a committee which would reach him and his newsroom. And he said that there was no point even doing a report which didn't match their opinions because that simply that report would not go to air. And he said there was a financial incentive for doing reports uh, which matched the views of the Ba'ath Party because you would get a bonus if you did so. That's essentially how you got paid. And he said that when he went along to interviews, he said Syrian people didn't really know what to say. He would tell them what to say. He would tell them to say, uh, we love President Bashar Assad, we want him to continue ruling, and then they would repeat and say this. What are the dangers if you don't tow the party line, the Ba'ath party line? I think the first danger is more a practical financial danger. They simply would not get paid. They, they would lose their job and they would struggle to find a different uh, a different form of employment. I think the second danger really came into uh, strong focus last week on the same day that Mr. Slaber left uh, Syria, or I beg your pardon, when he arrived in Turkey. We understand that that day uh, the offices of uh, one of his channel's offices near Damascus were raided. Seven people were killed by unidentified gunmen and the footage of, the, of their deaths, of the the aftermath of their deaths has been running prominently on the channel. It shows that for pro-government journalists now, whether they're pro-government in their hearts or not, it doesn't matter, but government, but journalists who repeat the government line, that they now clearly face a physical threat as well. Syrians are not stupid. Don't they realize that al-Akbariya is feeding them propaganda and they're getting simply the government's point of view? Exactly a question we asked Mr. Slaver himself. We said, do they believe what you say? And he said he did 
in the interview use generalizations. He said they're very simple people. They believe what we tell them. Now, clearly, that's just the view of one man who's just changed country. Uh, I think a lot of other Syrians inside Syria would say that that is not the case, that they are a highly educated country and they're able to make up their own mind and that people with Internet access uh, are able to get other sources of information and make up their own minds and not slavishly follow uh, the, the news brought down to them by the Ba'ath Party. Now, Gatan Sleba admitted to you that he lied when he practiced journalism. Can you tell us why he left Syria? We asked him this question and essentially he said he, he couldn't continue. He felt that uh, he wanted freedom. And in a lot of our interview, he spoke in very uh, lofty terms. I, I suppose they were hard to translate from, from the Arabic into English about the desire for freedom, a new start for the Syrian people. Uh, so he didn't really give specifics as to, as to what made him leave at the particular time that he left. We did try to pin him down on that. But he said it was a, it was a desire for freedom that made him leave. The BBC's James Reynolds speaking to us from the Turkey-Syria border. On Saturday, voters in Libya go to the polls for the country's first election since the ouster of Muammar Gaddafi. More than 3,000 candidates are competing for just 200 seats in a new assembly. The winners will be charged with creating a government and helping to draft Libya's new constitution. Among the candidates are about two dozen Libyan Americans. Reporter Marine Olivezi found one of them campaigning in Kabao, a small town in Libya's western mountains. In the shadow of a mosque nested in Libya's Nefusa Mountains, Juma Shaouj greets old acquaintances and new faces. They've all gathered for an occasion unthinkable under Gaddafi's rule, the political rally of a long-term exile. I've been out of this village for about 32 years. I left this country in 1980. But these people are my people. And I'm coming back, I'm trying, you know, feeling their struggles and their problems and if we can find you know, a way of how to support it. And now Juma is striving to become their first ever elected representative. His return and possible election marks a new chapter in a personal journey that has been for over three decades blessed with fortunate timing. I was so lucky because I was the last group to be sent to the States. The American embassy in Tripoli closed in 1980 after a mob of protesters burnt it down. Libyan authorities had granted Juma a scholarship to study in the U.S. just a few months earlier. In 1984, Juma was on track for a Ph.D. in science at the University of Arizona when his father was thrown in jail on suspicion he and others had plotted a coup. Shortly after, Juma was asked to fly back to Libya to renew his government-sponsored scholarship. But I knew it's a trick because I know my father is in the prison. So immediately when they, when they said, hey, threaten me, he said, either to go back to Libya to sign this contract or we'll cut off that this scholarship. I said, cut it off. I didn't feel, you know, a degree is more important than the principles of values that I need to live for. Juma never saw his father again. Without financial backing, Juma had to drop out, but the strained relations between the U.S. and Libya played in his favor. He was quickly granted political asylum, along with his wife and four children. In 1986, the family moved to Sacramento, and they embraced the U.S. as home. But Libya remained on his mind. Juma became the West Coast representative of the National Front for the Salvation of Libya. The group was an exiled opposition to Gaddafi's regime. There were moments of... Uh... Real despair. The group's founder, Mohamed Magariev, lived in Atlanta, Georgia, during most of his time in exile. He's also back in Libya now. He says for three decades, the front kept drumming the anti-Qaddafi beat against all odds and naysayers. 
we heard many voices that uh, tried to make us feel that whatever efforts we made have no impact or no uh, no results because of the simple fact that Gaddafi was still there. But we were wise enough to keep calling for Gaddafi uh, regime to be toppled and uh, for the people to revolt against him until the last moment. When the uprising broke out in Benghazi in February 2011, members of the front set up a support committee that organized protests in the U.S. and fundraised for medical aid. Juma went to Tunisia to help Libyan refugees there. At one point, he managed an impromptu visit to Cabao. 31 years after he'd left, he says he could recognize neither his town nor his family. Those of my age are elders. And those youngsters who were not born, they are now running the show. My father, my mother, my grandmother, all those who loved me, who hugged me when I left, I found them to be in a cemetery, all of them lying, sleeping in the cemetery ground. Now I found myself stranger in my, in, within my family. Yet people in Cabao seemed eager to get him involved. After the revolution, friends asked him to run for office. They argued that the transition process needs help from those who've lived in democratic countries. Mohamed Magariev, the leader of the National Front from Atlanta, himself a candidate in another town, says former exiles have a clear edge in Libya's new political landscape. Candidates are not known. They don't have any history by which they can judge. It's all promises. <laughs> so in that, in that regard, where we have advantage, I mean, we did what we did, we did for our country. And this is the credibility that we have, which very few people do have. But Juma says outsiders face obvious challenges in bridging the gap with locals. For instance, he says his U.S.-acquired optimistic mindset and can-do attitude stand at odds with the prevailing mood here. All the time they talk about the past, about their sufferings, about problems. And say, okay, there's time for you to recover, but you can't spend your life, all your life, talking about the past and the sufferings. I mean, all the time you're adding salt Back at the mosque in Cabao, Juma makes his speech to about a hundred men sitting in circle. After the rally, Juma Ajaj, a writer in a newly created newspaper, says Juma's voice stands out in Cabao's field of candidates, and so will it, he hopes, in Libya's new Congress. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi in Cabao, Libya. There are, of course, many other Libyans living abroad who have not returned, but they are taking part in this weekend's historic election. Libya's election committee has given citizens outside of the country the right to vote, and plenty of Libyans living abroad are taking the opportunity to help shape their country. Dr. Hafid Walda is a native Libyan living in London and just had the chance to vote. Dr. Walda, had you ever voted before in your life? Not in Libya, no. No, Mm. this is my first time. And in London, how many voting stations are there for, for Libyans in this election? Uh, I'm only aware of one voting station. Mm. And w- where, where is it? In Wembley. It is in a hotel. In, in Wembley, at a hotel. Yes, yeah. So it's been hired for the occasion. And it will be the place where most of Libyans who live in the UK will come and vote. Did, did it seem busy when you were there? It was busy, but it's not as busy as I thought it would be. But mm. people trickling along, and it is a wonderful uh, wonderful atmosphere. It's uh, it's very easy, very joyful, very optimistic, and uh, I enjoyed it very much because every time I go to the Libyan embassy before the revolution, I always stressed because of the security, because of the uneasy atmosphere. This time is fantastic. 
Now, this election is for uh, Libya's National Assembly. Some 200 people sit in the National Assembly in Libya. What's at stake in this election, in your opinion? Uh, it's basically to decide the future of the country in terms of choosing the RAS uh, constitutions. So they probably will be voting initially on forming a government. Uh, a new government would last for a year to run the country in this transitional period. Is this and, National Assembly crucial because they will be writing a new constitution for Libya? Yes. The, first of all, they have to decide what sort of constitution you want yeah, is it a parliamentary? Is it a presidential? Or is it a monarchy? I don't think the monarchy will be. It will be either parliamentary or presidential. The majority prefers parliamentary, but the, the National Assembly will decide on that. Now, I know there's been plenty of enthusiasm surrounding the election uh, in, in Libya this weekend, but there's still been a, a lot of pushback from different groups across the country about the future of Libya and, and different opinions on, on where Libya should be going, even whether to restore the monarchy. Um, do, do you think the election will solve those concerns? I hope it will. I think it will. Now, the, uh, these issues will be taken out of the uh, tribal sort of uh, people or mm. and from the regionalists or the federalists or from the people who have extreme views about religion. It will be based on people who have been chosen by the people. And uh, hopefully this is, will be a new stage for Libya and towards a really full democracy. Dr. Walda, are you confident that the younger generation will kind of get involved and not just be part of the revolution, but will be part of constructing Libya's future? I think we all uh, dependent on the younger generation. There's the future for Libya, and those are the people who actually started the revolution. Those are the people who felt that being isolated for a long time from the world uh, it didn't do well for them, and they are just the people who have uh, high hopes. And they're really, really willing to improve themselves. They are, they are very enthusiastic because they've been left in the dark for many, many years, uh, outside, isolated. Now we want to be involved in the future of Libya to get Libya in comparable sort of status with other countries around it. But at the same time, the, the younger generation, they, they have a huge amount of work to do to push Libya forward. Dr. Walda, very good to speak with you. Thank you very much. Still ahead, Palestinian officials say it's okay to exhume Yasser Arafat's body on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're going to spend the next few minutes talking about language issues in the news. Coming up, we'll have Higgs boson haikus to share with you. But first, the world's language editor, Patrick Cox, joins us to talk about a story out of India. That's right, Marco. And and in India, as you know, is has an incredible diversity of languages. Many people there speak you know, two, three, maybe even four languages. And I think most stories about language in India are told at either end of the of the linguistic spectrum. So, in what way? Well, there are stories about 
lingua francas, which tend more and more to be about Hindi and English, these two languages that are really taking over, especially in the cities. Mm. And then at the other end of the linguistic spectrum, there are stories about dying languages. I, I, I'm sure you've heard those stories. Where, right. Yeah, the last guy on earth to speak a, a certain language. He's about to die, and there goes the language. That's it. Well, this story coming up is about languages that are kind of in between. They're neither about to die, nor are they faring particularly well. They might be spoken by you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And you have a a group of linguists in India who have made something of an intervention to try and make sure that these languages thrive in the future. Uh, we asked reporter Hadley Robinson to spend some time with these linguists at their work. Okay, let's hear her report. In western India, in the state of Gujarat, lies the small town of Chota Udaipur. Many people from the Ratwa tribe live here. Down a narrow dirt road, past cotton plants and piles of harvested corn husks, 80-year-old Latu Rutia rises from the cot on his back porch. He tells me that his people are primarily farmers and have been for generations. Rutia wears just a loincloth and an earring. He speaks his native tongue, Ratwi. Rutia says in the schools his grandchildren attend, they're taught in the state language, Gujarati. They are forced to speak differently, he says. Rutia worries that elements of the Ratwi language are trickling away, even though it's believed there are nearly a million speakers. The number of speakers, though, may be less important than how and where the language is spoken. That's where the People's Linguistic Survey of India comes in. They have field workers spread across the country, documenting Ratwi and hundreds of Indian languages. Researchers are documenting each language's characteristics and recording its folk stories and songs. They also note how the languages describe time and color. For example, the Ratwi language labels various stages of dawn, when the cock crows as one part, and when the birds start moving, another. Ganesh Devi created the survey. He says embedded in each language are unique ways of seeing the world. Some languages in India do not have terms for the color blue. I asked them how they look at the sky. So they said they do not think of a blue sky. They just think of the sky. And they think of the sky as so sacred that no adjective be attached to it. Of the roughly 900 languages spoken across India, many are closely related. Some, though, very wildly, especially when it comes to concepts like color. According to Andrew Garrett, linguistics professor at the University of California, Berkeley, it's these singular ways of describing things that are the first to go when a language like Ratwi assimilates into dominant languages. That's one reason documentation can help. If your government is interested in supporting small languages, then it's helpful for them to know that the language of your village is really quite different from the language of the other villages nearby. They might actually put some effort into doing what's needed in education or in language documentation. UNESCO has listed nearly 200 Indian languages as endangered. Some regions of India are experimenting with offering mother tongue-based education. That's when students are taught in the same language that they speak at home. Many studies show that approach increases children's learning and decreases dropout levels. It's something the Indian linguists support. And Andrew Garrett says it can help slow the death of languages. In the face of thousands of endangered languages, not all of them are going to still be used in 100 years. Many of them won't be, but I think some efforts will be successful. Earlier this year, the Indian linguists started handing over their findings to the Indian government. Davies says the government response was encouraging. He's hopeful they will introduce a program supporting mother tongue-based education. 
Now comes another challenge, convincing people that their language doesn't have to hold them back. Language is becoming a kind of condition for being counted as modern. If you speak your language, you are traditional. If you speak some other language, you are modern. To Devi, the Ratwa people living in rural Gujarat are just as modern as those racing to business meetings in downtown Mumbai. Just because they speak an ancient tongue and live far from the city doesn't mean they should be excluded from proper schooling and progress. Now that Devi and his colleagues have provided details of all the known languages of India, they're hoping for swift government action so that school teachers will once again instruct students in their native language. For The World, I'm Hadley Robinson. Language editor Patrick Cox still with me in the studio. Patrick, I need you to help me with some poetic language from listeners now. You'll recall yesterday we asked our audience to share their thoughts on the big news that scientists say they may have discovered the so-called God particle. That's this uh, elusive subatomic particle that could explain why matter has mass. And we wanted listeners to convey their thoughts in the form of a haiku. So we received dozens of haikus. And Patrick... Did you have any favorites? Oh, I did. There were a lot of good ones. But were, I, I yeah. really like this one from uh, listener Ashley Eckhoff. Uh, here it is. Why do things have mass? The answer is hard to find. Higgs to the rescue. Beautiful. Nice and simple. Yeah. And, and here's another one from Dan Kennedy. Higgs boson makes me feel stupid reading about it gives me a headache. <laughs> right. It, it is very complex stuff to get a, get your head around, which is why we had people do these haikus. I had a couple, Patrick. Uh, this one from Derek Anderson. The Higgs gives us mass. Without it, what would we be? A whole lot lighter. Well, that explains something to me about what it's about. Listener Catherine V. also sent us a good one, and she referenced a recent turn of phrase by Washington Nationals baseball star Bryce Harper in the middle of a press conference. So here's Catherine V.'s. That's a clown question, bro, about boson of Higgs. We all know it's God. That's just fantastic. <laughs> I like that one. So there you go. A few wonderful haikus from listeners on the meaning of the possible discovery of the Higgs boson particle. And before we let you go, Patrick, we literally have time just to talk about this week's World in Words podcast and the word literally. And its usage or misusage or whatever we should call it. This is an old favorite. Everybody occasionally slips, I guess you could say, when uh, they use the word literally. And the person who slipped most recently was no less than the British Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Nick Clegg. He was complaining about people who go out of their way to avoid paying high taxes. And he said, I quote, you can see people literally in a different galaxy who are paying extraordinarily low rates of tax. Wow. The only galaxy I know is the Milky Way. So they've got to be really far away. It's a lot further than the Cayman Islands, that's for sure. <laughs> Definitely. How about this one from Swedish broadcaster Ulrika Jonsson? She was talking about child custody laws in, in Sweden. She said that divorced parents will literally split the child in half. Talk about a messy divorce. Wow. <laughs> Very unfortunate for all involved. Patrick, thanks so much. You're welcome, Marco. You can hear many more recent examples of how the word literally is being used on the latest World in Words podcast. It's literally at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, how a British sculptor recreated an iconic movie's cliffhanger ending. He says passersby can't quite believe what they're seeing. We've got cars slowing down. We've got people coming up to the site and taking out their 
phones and photographing it. And of course, that means it's just going around the world now. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's been eight years since a Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, died, and there are still many questions about what killed him. After becoming ill in October 2004, Arafat was flown to a hospital in Paris. He died about two weeks later. This week, Al Jazeera Television broadcast the results of its own nine-month probe, suggesting Arafat might have been poisoned with the radioactive substance polonium. The Palestinian Authority says it is willing to have Arafat's body exhumed to get to the bottom of the mystery. The world's Matthew Bell reports from the West Bank city of Ramallah. On a sidewalk not far down the road from Yasser Arafat's tomb, a 75-year-old shopkeeper named Naim Hamad Musa sits holding a set of prayer beads. He reflects on the legacy of the man many Palestinians see as the founding father of their national struggle. We love him so, so much, Musa says. He was a great leader. The investigation should continue. We have to find out who killed Arafat, he says. Was it Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad? Was it an Arab intelligence service? We need conclusions, he says. But conclusions have been elusive. Swiss scientists told Al Jazeera that the radioactive material polonium was found on belongings given to Arafat's widow. But they can't know if this was the cause of death without doing more tests. Suha Arafat objected to an autopsy when her husband died in 2004. Now she wants his body to be exhumed for more testing. Officials with the Palestinian Authority say they would agree to that, but it might have to wait for an international inquiry. Mahmoud Labadi is a Fatah party spokesman. Like most Palestinians, he has long believed that Arafat was murdered. This was a crime committed by someone. Of course, we need evidence to say that it is Israel. But when you ask in, in an investigation, who takes benefit of this? Nobody has, has an interest in killing Yasser Arafat except uh, Israel. Nobody. Israel rejects any allegations that it was involved in a plot to poison Arafat. And speaking on condition of anonymity, a government official told the BBC that the Palestinian Authority holds all the medical records on Arafat. If it wants full transparency, he said, those records should be made public. The New York Times says it reviewed a leaked copy of those records in 2005, and the documents showed that Arafat died from a stroke brought on by an infection. But the cause of that infection was unknown. The French doctors also found no poisons in Arafat's body. Asked why Palestinian officials have not conducted a more thorough investigation into the cause of Arafat's death over the years, Mahmoud Labadi dismisses the implication that there's been any cover-up. It's maybe carelessness, neglect, laziness. Nobody is hiding or trying to hide anything. They said, please come, you can exhume Arafat's body and see. 
But as far as most Palestinians are concerned, Arafat did not die of natural causes, and no investigation, no matter how thorough, will change people's minds. Columnist Mohanad Abdel Hamid says he's not against getting to the bottom of the mystery, but he says the issue could very well stir up dangerous divisions in Palestinian society. There is real tension right now between the Palestinian Authority and the public, Abdel Hamid says. Just this week, there were two days of anti-government demonstrations here. In such an atmosphere, he adds, bringing up the issue of Arafat's death could further inflame the situation and lead to a crisis. So he questions why Arafat's widow and Al Jazeera would bring the issue up now. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah in the West Bank. In Spain, when the economy was strong, there was a drive to crack down on developers building hotels too close to the coastline. But now with its economy in tatters, Spain is considering changing a 1988 law that limits coastline construction. That could affect one particular hotel that's already up along the country's southern Mediterranean coast. The 400-room structure is a sort of poster boy for Spain's poor coastal management. The hotel is under a demolition order. But as the world's Jerry Haddon reports from Carboneras, many locals want to save it. The Hotel Algaborrico rises like a huge white pyramid against the mountainous coastline of Almeria, Spain. It's a massive symbol of Spain's unbridled construction boom, a boom that often led local officials to put making money above the law. During a recent protest at the site, this activist from Greenpeace laid out the two main laws the hotel violates. First, he said it was built within 500 yards of the shore. Building that close is illegal because of potential environmental degradation. And second, the hotel was built inside a protected national park. The guy's right. Even the hotel's owners agree. It's too close to the beach, and it's in a park where you're not supposed to build. To be clear, the Algaborrico Hotel isn't actually open. It never opened. In 2006, when it was nearly completed, a judge halted construction based on environmental concerns. The recent Greenpeace protest was over the fact that it still hasn't been torn down. Greenpeace has been periodically occupying the empty hotel since 2009. The group once draped the whole thing in green to make it appear disappeared. For a long time, many locals cheered the activists on. In a sense, they could afford to. Spain's building boom still had the economy hot. Few people were out of work. On the beach right in front of the hotel, a guy named Armando Cesar Villalba is relaxing with his wife and baby under a sun umbrella. He says he was one of the legions of locals earning good money in bricks and mortar. He says six years ago I was earning $2,000 a month as a grunt on construction sites, but all of that work has disappeared. Now, he says, I work for three months as a waiter during the summer season, then get three months of unemployment. This is no way to live. Villalba says when the Hotel Algaborrico was going up, he didn't think much about it. Now he sees in it the town's salvation. This hotel could mean two or three hundred jobs for us, he says. More than half of Carboneras has no work. People tell me, I was signed up to work at this hotel. Then their hopes were dashed. Behind each story, there are families and children. Villalba says he thinks if the people unite, they can get the hotel opened. In fact, in recent months, a grassroots push has swelled into a political movement. The mayors of 26 surrounding towns have signed a petition in support of the hotel. 
y espero y deseo Carboneras Mayor Salvador Hernández told reporters recently that he was optimistic that soon both residents and visitors will see the Hotel Algaborrico open to the public. And some locals have taken it upon themselves to confront Greenpeace occupiers. A couple of young men recently jumped a security fence and entered the empty hotel to demand a dialogue with some activists holed up inside. Do you even care about the people of Carboneras, one of the guys shouts. You're giving Carboneras a bad name. It's hard to hear what the Greenpeace guy yells back. This is from an amateur video on YouTube. But he probably says something like, it's the hotel itself that's sullying Carboneras' reputation. But whatever he's saying, fewer local people seem to be listening. Polls suggest that virtually all Carboneras residents now want the hotel open. Part of the new momentum to save the hotel comes from upcoming changes to Spain's 24-year-old coastal law. So far, the Environment Ministry has been vague about what those changes are. On the one hand, officials say the law needs more teeth so that folks don't flaunt it. But they also say they want to improve the legal situation for the owners of existing properties. If the law is enforced as is, tens of thousands of homes and hotels would be pulled down. But the crisis is making following through on that unappealing. First of all, demolition would cost a lot of money. And second, it's frightening away foreign investment on the coasts, especially among British retirees who flocked to Spain in recent decades. Tourism is about the only sector in Spain doing well these days. Given such rumblings in Madrid, no one in Carboneras is ready to believe that the hotel will truly disappear. This despite a Supreme Court decision weeks ago affirming that the hotel is illegal. The owner of one bar in Carboneras, who didn't want to give his name, says he gets that, but he wants the hotel to open anyway, because he says the town can't afford to tear it down. He says whoever's responsible for issuing the illegal building permits should pay, but we citizens should be spared. We're already struggling to pay our taxes, he says. We can barely afford to buy a pair of pants. We shouldn't have to suffer more because of someone else's mistake. The federal government and the regional government of Andalusia are currently arguing over who should pay for the court-ordered demolition. But even though the hotel's days appear numbered, many in Carboneras hold out hope that Spain's soon-to-be-revised coastal law will spare the complex and let it open. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Carboneras, Spain. Authorities in France this week placed the former head of communications giant France Telecom under investigation. Didier Lombard's lawyer says his client is being investigated for psychological harassment in relation to a wave of suicides at the company during his tenure as CEO. More than 30 France Telecom employees committed suicide between 2008 and 2009. Many left notes blaming pressure from management. This after Lombard had led a massive restructuring of the company, which included tens of thousands of layoffs. Didier Lombard was forced to step down in 2010. Other former France telecom executives are also under investigation. The world's Adeline Sia is following the story. France Telecom and its uh, flagship brand Orange is really a giant of uh, sort of mobile landline internet business. Uh, They are the first internet provider in France, in fact. They employ 100,000 people in France, which uh, is huge. And now to backtrack a little bit, in 2005, uh, France Telecom merged with several companies uh, and to stay competitive, or at least that's the claim of Didier Lombard to this day, they had to make a lot of cuts, 22,000 cuts uh, through attrition, voluntary departures, and so on. But also 10,000 people uh, saw their job descriptions completely changed. 
So, for example, even if they came from an engineering background, they would have to do or marketing work or things like that. And people say that really created a sort of toxic atmosphere. And over the span of about two years, more than uh, 30 people committed suicide. Right. And that didn't stop in 2009, did it? No. In fact, there were two more last year, uh, including a man who set himself on fire in uh, a France Telecom parking lot. So uh, former CEO Didier Lombard is out on uh, about a $125,000 bail. What does he have to say at this point? Well, Didier Lombard tried to explain his position in an editorial in Le Monde this week defending his position and what he had to do for the survival of, of the company. He saw the transition of the company from public to private in 1997, and he says you know, part of what he had to do was part of this transition that was necessary at this point. Uh, he's a former engineer for the company. He says that he has devoted his life to it, started in 1967 there, and certainly he says he would have never done anything to harass his own employees. Um, But what's really interesting here is that uh, this is the first time a major CEO for a major corporation is put under investigation for moral harassment. France's still powerful labor unions must have uh, some pretty strong opinions about this. What what do they say? Well, they they point out, as has been said before, that the climate at the company was making it impossible to move or train and and really uh, learning the right tools to move on. So you were kind of stuck if you if you worked there. That's that's what they say. And also, back in 2010, government labor inspectors said they had written reports about the mental health of some of the workers there, and that those reports and those warnings were ignored. A charge of moral harassment and uh, some 30 suicides. I mean, if Didier Lombard is connected to all this, what happens to him? It's still a bit early to say, and it's sort of unclear, but he could be getting a huge fine and going to jail for a year. The world's Adeline Sierra. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Marco. Time now to go to the movies. Our GeoQuiz today takes us back to the original Italian job, a movie. The American remake came out in 2003. The British classic it was based on hit movie theaters in 1969. The original had many quotable lines, but most famous is this one from Michael Caine starring as Charlie Croker. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. He's leading a group of robbers who steal a load of gold in Italy. The heist is masterminded from inside a prison by Noel Coward's character, Mr. Bridger. If you don't come back with the goods, Nellie here will turn in her grave and, likely as not, jump right out of it and kick your teeth in. We want you to name the Italian city where the heist takes place. I remind you, this is the original Italian job we're talking about. We won't leave you hanging for long. The answer is just ahead. Next time on the program, Wild Animals. The Tasmanian devil has been absent from Australia's mainland for centuries, but now some there want to bring the voracious predator back to control Australia's explosion of foxes and cats from Europe. That's next time on The World. This is PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Detectives Lewis and Hathaway are back on the case, battling a crime wave in the academic haven of Oxford, England. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You know the film The Italian Job? The original 1969 British classic heist caper was nothing like the American 2003 remake. The remake starred Mark Wahlberg, and the heist took place in Venice. The original starred Michael Caine, and the heist took place in Turin, which is the answer to our geo-quiz today. The plots were different, too. If you've seen the original Italian Job, you know it ends with a cliffhanger, literally. Yes, there's that word again. The bus the robbers were using crashes and it teeters on the edge of a cliff. Gold on one side of the bus, robbers on the other. Hang on a minute, lads. I've got a great idea. That memorable last line of dialogue is also the name of a new exhibition by British sculptor Richard Wilson. He's recreated that last scene from the 1969 classic in a British seaside town. Richard, if we wanted to visit this, what exactly would we see? Describe your uh, exhibit for us. What you have on the roof of the Dilawar Pavilion at Bexhill-on-Sea will be a full-size replica of the Harrington Legionnaire copied from the images from the film. It's teetering on the edge. It's hydraulically driven to move up and down 12 degrees, which is quite a considerable bit. Now, in the Italian job, the movie, the bus teeters uh, on a cliff in Turin. You're in Bexhill, England. Why did you do it? Uh, the late director, Alan Hayden, who unfortunately died last year, invited myself to come along to Bexhill and look at the rooftop with the idea of a rooftop commission. I went along, I looked, and I came up with the idea. I realised what we needed to find was some kind of cliffhanger that drew attention to that iconic building. And right. what better way than to put that iconic coach from that iconic movie and make the building almost in a cinematic event. Well, it was great for the pavilion to let you do this, but how difficult was it to pull off? I mean, you've got 12 tons of bus sitting up on that roof. A 12 ton of coach, including the chassis, which holds it onto the roof. We've got to remember, this is a listed building, and one just can't go along and, and, and use the nation's buildings and, and chop them up and anchor bits <laughs> of steel into support coaches. It was then a case of local bureaucracy with local authorities, and then it was finding the money, and then it was putting the technical team together to realise the actual physical project. Right. And when it finally got up on the roof, you, you step back, look at it, teetering there. What did you think? Oh, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, if it excites me, I know it's going to excite my audience. We've got cars slowing down. We've got people coming up to the site and taking out their phones and photographing it. Of course, that means it's just going around the world now. I think by Friday evening, uh, any of your audience, if they want to go on YouTube, they're going to start seeing that coach teetering on the edge of that building. Well, you can see the bus for yourself on our website. That's at theworld.org. Sculptor Richard Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Great stuff. Enjoyed it. Finally today, we meet a singer from Argentina who's not your typical Argentine singer. Reporter David Summerstein has her story. In their home studio, husband and wife duo Gabi Kerpel and Mariana Jegros are putting the finishing touches on a song for their new project, La Jegros. Their bass players laying down tracks to replace a synthesized bass line. Mariana snuggles with a white poodle in her arms. The black one snoozes at her feet as the mix comes together. (laughs) 
Mariana Jegros is conservatory trained, but her voice is anything but classical. It's sharp and high, wild and aboriginal, says her husband. Jegros says that's from her parents, who are from Argentina's northernmost province of Misiones, deep in the forest near Brazil. Jegros says she grew up listening to traditional chamame music with her father, who carried a radio everywhere he went. So she naturally gravitated towards a more folkloric kind of sound. Chegros isn't new to the Buenos Aires scene. She's a veteran frontwoman with several bands. And she's been a guest vocalist on her husband's music since they met 15 years ago at a casting for the touring show De La Guarda, sort of Argentina's answer to Stomp. Kerpel composed the music for De La Guarda, and he's been a leader in electronic music in Buenos Aires, often going under the name King Koja. Kerpel says this project, La Jegros, brings Mariana and a live band up front. A DJ or laptop set is really easy to take on tour, but once you grow a little bit and you start playing at bigger festivals, one person behind a laptop on stage starts looking boring. Mariana Jegros delivers. On stage, she wears tight, colorful outfits, a bright headband taming her frizzy afro. She dances and shakes. She shimmies. And unlike the practice seriousness of many DJs, La Jegros is all smiles and warmth, so completely unconcerned with coolness. She says sometimes she gets advice to try to adapt a personality, but she prefers just to be herself. <laughs> That's what makes her so attractive, says the bass player Beno Welbert. She's not trying to be like, okay, here I come, he says. She's fresh, and she conquers you little by little. <laughs> and she did conquer recently, at a major folk festival in nearby La Plata. Few people knew La Chegros, but by the time she and the band rolled into one of her signature tunes, Bendita Chamame, a sort of musical benediction called Blessed Chamame, several thousand people were on their feet, jumping and dancing. And like a pastor leading her flock, Jegro sang with arms out wide, embracing and enticing her newfound fans. Suddenly, I looked out at the crowd and I was like, wow, this is crazy. This really blew up. It spread from one person to another and people were dancing. It was incredible. Grant Duell runs the Zizek record label, a trendsetter in the music scene here. He's popularizing a uniquely Buenos Aires fusion of traditional South American music with experimental, sometimes wacky DJ beats. La Jegros is Zizek's first female artist. Duell says more than sheer femininity, it's La Jegros' pop melodic sensibility that can attract new listeners. She's sensual, she's beautiful, she has... Uh just qualities of connecting with the audience and with a whole different public. 
some of our artists are just an extremely hard sell because they do really weird out there left field crazy instrumental music her album and her live show it sounds fresh it sounds new it's it's very hooky and it's it, it gets in your head Duel hopes to have the album out by the end of the year with a tour to follow so La Chegros and her band can captivate new fans with its brand of Amazonic pop soon For The World, I'm David Summerstein in Buenos Aires That's our program today. I'm Marco Werman on Twitter at Marco Werman, and we're back tomorrow from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.